Zada Hunsade ne TVO Radiri Hoenata. You are listening to a TVO podcast. Sovereignty is the ability for a people to make their own decisions, to speak and be heard. For indigenous people battling generations of colonization, we express our sovereignty in many different ways. Through living our lives as our authentic indigenous selves, through our leadership, stories, and teachings, and through our art. Join us, Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk, on the art of sovereignty. In each episode, we explore the history and lives of First Nations artists who would not let others define them. They fought against the currents and used their work and their influence to break barriers and bring Indigenous perspectives to the forefront. Sego Sewagwagon, Shelby Youngyats, Liste Waxanazre, Geningehaga Niwakunjodon, Dano Waganyatun, Gundege Nidiwagenu. I'm Shelby Lisk, a Gunyangehaga artist and journalist from Tyndanaga Mohawk Territory. From TVO Podcasts, this is The Art of Sovereignty. I didn't know a lot about my culture growing up. One thing I did know is my family is Turtle Clan. When my grandmother married a non-native man, she lost her government Indian status. But our community always knew who we were. Unlike the Indian Act, our family ties, our clans, follow down our mother's line. When I went to Longhouse for the first time as a young adult, the Turtle Clan mother told me I was home. Clan mothers are leaders in the community. They provide guidance, they choose names, and they select the right men to serve the people as chief. From ceremonies to bake sales, it is always the women in our communities that make things happen. Daphne Ojig was not a clan mother, but to a generation of Indigenous painters, she was their leader. People even call her the grandmother of Indigenous art. During her lifetime, Indigenous culture finally became decriminalized, and her work ensured a place for the voices of Indigenous women in the renaissance of art that followed. As second-wave feminism flourished alongside Indigenous rights movements in the 60s and 70s, Ojig took up her own brand of feminism. You know, she wasn't about trying to be like a man, trying to live the same life that men live. She was asserting her right to live as a woman, but to have that honored in the same way that men's lives were honored and respected. And so she never shied away from celebrating her family, her children, her mother and father and grandfather, she centered herself in this culture of care. That's Anishinaabe artist and curator Bonnie Devine. For Bonnie, Ojig led the burgeoning Indigenous art community the best way she knew how, by leading as an Indigenous woman. In many ways, they solidify things, they hold things together, they knit together the chaos of the family or the community through love. And so I, I would say that her emphasis is on the power of love to create change and to sustain people during those times of tumultuous change. In 2005, Bonnie curated a retrospective of Ojig's work. It was the first solo exhibition by a female Indigenous artist at the National Gallery of Canada. She holds a room. She has a powerful presence. Uh, she has charisma. 
the beautiful, dazzling smile. She was in her mid-80s when I met her, I think. She was scary smart, <laughs> you know, not afraid uh, to be as smart as she was, uh, not afraid to be critical and probing in her questions, and at the same time, marvelously kind and warm. Just a combination of, of characteristics that reminded me and reinforced for me the gifts of the Anishinaabe people. Bonnie is one of many Indigenous artists who took solace in Ojig's guidance. The incredible breadth of wisdom and experience that she contained and that she exuded in the ways that she talked, in the way that she related to the people around her, and particularly, of course, in her art, in the, the paintings that she showed me that she'd created over a lifetime of practice. Ojig's work is known for overlapping shapes, curved contours, strong outlines, and an unsurpassed sense of color. Over her career, she maintained a commitment to her personal history and vision. She painted family life and colonial history, produced complex abstractions inspired by Anishinaabe legends and metaphysics, and shared the journey of Indigenous people over decades. But let's start her story a little earlier, before she became Daphne Ojig, the legend. Ojig was born in 1919 and grew up in McQuamacong on Manitoulin Island in Northern Ontario. Her formal education was cut short at age 13 by rheumatic fever, but she learned drawing from her grandfather, a stone carver, and her father, who would often tell her stories about creation and legends of the trickster Nanabush while they sketched and painted. When Ojig was 18 years old, she left Manitoulin Island with her younger sister, Winnie. So they were two very young, vulnerable Indigenous women trying to get along in the town of Parry Sound. Her education had been interrupted as a young girl, and so um, she was seeking work as a housekeeper, as a um, babysitter. She'd answer the ads in the paper, she'd turn up for the interview, and as soon as they saw her, as soon as they heard her name, Daphne Ojig, she wouldn't get the job. Ojig learned quickly that she needed to blend in, so she decided to go by the English translation of her last name. During the Second World War, she moved to Toronto as Daphne Fisher and found work in factories. If people asked her, you know, where do you come from? Or what is your nationality? Or they would say, are you Spanish? Are you Israeli? Because of her dark skin and dark hair. And she wouldn't contradict them. Ojig kept up her sketching while working three jobs. On evenings and weekends, she would study paintings by the great masters at the Art Gallery of Toronto, now called the Art Gallery of Ontario. She even won an award under the name Daphne Fisher. Uh, she was painting at that time in a um, very Western style, very influenced by the Impressionists. They're beautiful pictures, but I would say that had she continued to paint as Daphne Fisher and painting these sort of derivative European-style oils, we would not know her now. The reason that we know about Daphne Ojig is because she had a spiritual and an artistic awakening, a breakthrough that occurred in the mid-1960s. The course of Ojig's life and art career changed when she got an invitation back to Aquemacong for their annual powwow in 1964. 
She was 45 years old and had never been to a powwow in her life. Wakomakong had made history just four years earlier, when the community hosted the first modern-day powwow in Ontario, after generations of being outlawed. And she accepted the invitation. She came back. She was a little embarrassed because, of course, she'd been spending these years trying to be invisible as an Indigenous person. trying to make that part of her heritage as imperceptible as possible. And here she was in the middle of her hometown and people were attempting to celebrate that thing. And she said to me that they started to dance and the drum was playing in the center of the circle on the powwow ground. Someone came to her and said, come, come and join us, come and dance. She was at first reluctant. She didn't know how to dance. She was embarrassed. But she went eventually and began to quietly dance to the drum. And she said, you know, that drum got in her heart. And she understood that she was an Indian. And that was the time, I think, when um, something inside her body, not her mind, not her personality, not all of those ego aspirations that come with trying to fit in, something inside her body and her blood responded. For many people, the return of the powwow at Wakomakong symbolically broke the hold of the church and state. Not only did it bring back the long outlawed traditions of drumming and dancing, the powwow, just as it does today, offered a place for the community to meet, exchange ideas, gossip, and share. Here is Ojig speaking in a CBC interview from 1992. It was the early 60s. Uh, Native people were um, becoming more aware of their culture and, and becoming uh, and being very proud of it. And they went back to their powwows and things. And my my reserve knew that I painted and they thought I could uh, I could express their feelings through my work and that's when I started to uh, do my legends and going back to my roots sort of, so to speak after the powwow Ojig was invited by her sister-in-law Rosemary Peltier to spend the summer visiting with elders from their community she would record stories to create a series of drawings sharing what she heard the stories she collected over that summer became a set of 10 primary readers sharing the tales of the trickster Nanabush. They are still used as learning tools in the community today. Ojig once said, it was focusing on the legends that guided her back to being proud of herself as a Potawatomi person. And I believe that those sets of drawings and the stories that she transcribed during that summer, that's when she began to own the name Ojig. Ojig's early attempts to hide her Indigenous identity were over derailed by the renewed connections to her community and the resurgence of cultural awareness and pride spreading across Indian country in the 1960s. It was radical. Her style changed from that summer onward. She abandoned the attempts that she'd made to paint like the, quote, old masters, unquote, and began to explore a more instinctive way of making marks on paper because she began to use a very graphic, linear style. A lot of people have drawn a connection between that style 
and um, the style that Norval Morisot was beginning to practice at the same time. Now, Daphne said that she wasn't aware of Morisot's work, and so it would seem that there was a spontaneous eruption of a kind of pictorial language that began to emerge around this time. And I think it was happening in several different ways. It was happening politically. It was happening socially. It was happening in the communities. And for sure, it was beginning to happen in the art practice. What I like to think is that uh, the Indigenous culture was beginning to flex its muscle. And it seems to me that in those days, somehow, that muscle began to be aware of itself. And if, if you talk about sovereignty, then maybe that's what that word is getting at for, for us as Indigenous people here in Canada. In 1971, she established Ojig Indian Prince of Canada and a small craft shop in Winnipeg. Ojig was intent to distribute prints of her drawings and to support the work of Indigenous artists struggling to participate in the mainstream art markets. She was a teacher and, and was really, really interested in um, helping other artists find their footing in the art world, also find their voice. She knew what it meant to struggle, to find that thing that you wanted to say in the way that you wanted to say it and have the strength and courage to do that. She knew of that journey. By 1974, she had expanded and created the new Warehouse Gallery, the first gallery owned and operated by an Indigenous person in Canada. She also brought together seven artists who formed the Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc., the first self-organized First Nations Artist Advocacy Collective in the country. Although the group was relatively short-lived, its ideas and influence were critical to the development of contemporary Indigenous art in Canada. The genie was out of the bottle, Indigenous contemporary artists were not only here, but they were working together, and things would never be the same again. They sent out a letter across Canada to every Indigenous artist that they could think of to come and talk about how, how can we form a collective and begin to advocate for our own work and to begin to advocate for our work's place in the fine art canon, not just like this sort of whatever it was, craft work or souvenir work or something to promote Canadian nationalism or whatever, something that was actually located quite firmly within Canadian art history. The Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc. consisted of Alex Jeanvier, Jackson Beardy, Eddie Kobanis, Norval Morso, Carl Ray, Joseph Sanchez, and Daphne Ojig. Together, they pushed for recognition of First Nations art at a time when Indigenous artists were routinely invalidated, marginalized, and excluded by the dominant art world, and during a period just following the creation of the country's National Arts Funding Agency, the Canada Council for the Arts. So her strength, I think, and what differentiates her was her ability to understand that women can be an organizing principle in culture. And uh, she lived her life that way. And she was the one who presided over much of the organization and held that group together in many ways. I'm not saying that she was the only one. They were all incredibly um, active in making that happen. But Daphne was the mother of that. She was the founder of that. And I think she really assumed that position and she held that position right to the end of her life. 
she was a matriarch. The power of the organization also went beyond supporting artists. It fueled and in turn gave energy to indigenous rights movements. During a time when indigenous people had only recently been legally recognized as citizens of Canada. While all the artists in the PNIAI struggled to make their way in the world as indigenous people, Ojik had an added layer that none of the others in the group could understand. She made her way in a time when women had a difficult road to hoe in contemporary art. She was overshadowed by a number of very key figures in Indigenous art at the time. And so she wanted both to differentiate herself from them, but also own her place within that group of artists. So she was walking a pretty delicate line there, and she did it with such poise and courage. As she found her way in the Indigenous art movement, she also endured comparisons to artists from European traditions. People would tease her, or and it wasn't really teasing. Some of it was quite mean-spirited. They would call her Picasso's grandmother. or There were a lot of things that tried to imply that she was an adherent of Picasso's work. While the art world was coming to associate native painters with the woodland style popularized by Norval Morisot, Ojig pushed back on what the art market demanded of her as an Indigenous artist. And because of the lack of awareness of Indigenous histories and values, critics didn't recognize that the style she was developing was actually firmly rooted in her Anishinaabe tradition. What looked in their minds like cubism or surrealism was informed by Anishinaabe pictorial traditions and philosophies. Ojig once said, it is the line that brings her paintings to life. It's like a continuous line. Uh, there are very few places where you see that the line is broken. Everything is connected to one another. And in doing her work this way, she is referencing an old metaphysical truth that Indigenous people have adhered to, which is that, yes, we are connected. In fact, we're not just connected to each other as human beings, we're connected to everything. The water that flows in the lakes flows in us. The air that circulates around the planet circulates in us. We are so closely knitted into everything around us that we can't really be divided. It's a very, very deep philosophical truth, and it leads to a lot of implications in terms of how we treat each other, how we treat the planet, how we treat the other inhabitants of the planet. Abstract painting is often not thought of as indigenous, but paintings of abstract concepts have deep origins in our lands here on Turtle Island. When Europeans first arrived here, and looked at the markings they saw scratched or painted on the rocks, they could not read them. It took them many years from the time they first started studying pictographs and petroglyphs to understand what was going on. These early markings had a great impact on North American and European abstract painting. In other words, perhaps Picasso was inspired by us. Her journey through her lifetime really exemplifies the journey of an individual as they attempt to understand who they are as a person and then what their place is within a larger society. Ojig, like so many Indigenous people, was caught between two worlds. She had no formal art education, but learned her drawing style from her oral traditions and observing her stone carver grandfather. Ironically, her art was viewed by academics 
and curators as something pure and authentic, because it was unsullied by the influence of the Academy. They saw her as an ideal anthropological subject, connected to an old world that was dying or no longer existed at all. Because of this, she was rightfully given a prominent place in the emergence of Indigenous art. But as the new generation of academically trained Indigenous artists found their way out of museums and into fine art galleries in the 1960s, those same facts that intrigued academics and curators about her work prevented her from entering the cultural mainstream among the ranks of other fine artists. In 2009, Ojig wrote a letter that appeared in the book Seven, Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc., In this letter, she writes, It is not so long ago that the work of artists of Native ancestry was dismissed as ethnographic. Many people did not believe that our art was worthy of exhibition in fine art galleries because it was not rooted in European tradition. I am proud of my Potawatomi ancestry, but I have worked hard to earn respect simply as an artist. I remember having my paintings refused by a private gallery because it was too Indian. I also remember being told that my work was not Indian enough, My commitment is to painting in my own voice. I believe that the work of artists of Native ancestry can be as fine as the work of any tradition. I don't want to see young artists of Native ancestry paint themselves into a box in their search for authenticity. Every artist paints from their own cultural heritage and their own experience. Whatever your heritage, it will come out in your brush. She was working during a time when Indigenous women were, and still are, of course, marginalized, both within the art world and within Western concepts of art, but also socially, you know, how uh, Indigenous women were relegated to, I would say, a very demeaning position. And uh, she challenged it in absolutely every way. And as I came to know more about her, I recognized this sort of defiant posture that she was taking. As one of the only Indigenous women on the art scene, Ojik had to make her own mark, and she did. She painted women and family life from her perspective as a Potawatomi woman, such as one piece from 1984 called Two Ladies Quilting. With this complex arrangement of planes of colors, it stitches together a conversation over craft. It reminds me of the matriarchs in my family or a four-panel series depicting a grandfather with his grandchildren in different configurations around him, sitting with fixed gaze listening or wrapped in his embrace. But it wasn't just subject matter that set Ojik apart. When you compare Daphne's work to other of her contemporaries at the time, they had found a style. It was typified, I would say, mostly by Morisot in what they call the woodland style. So a very definite black line, a form line around all of the contours of the figures, very flat planes. So no breaking up of the paint, no mixing of the paint, just flat planes enclosed within these black lines. And she's certainly exploring that. But She was also looking at how to break that form line, the black form line, and also how to break the picture plane by mixing the colors or by um, scarifying the colors. Although Ojig's work is still closely associated with the woodland style, Bonnie emphasizes that there is an impressive depth of experimentation in Ojig's art practice that is often overlooked. There is always this desire, I think, 
by Canadian art history to just look at this aspect of her style and not look at the other ways that she was challenging the conventions that the art market, the art public was imposing on her. In 1985, Ojik said, During the 60s and 70s, public awareness of Indian art mushroomed, and the art became fashionable. Although I was pleased with the growing interest, I became more and more concerned with what seemed to be a rapidly entrenched and touristy definition of Indian art. It seemed that a set pattern was being established as a winning formula. More and more of the public seemed to expect that since we were Indians, we should all paint as an ethnological entity, stylized and predictable. The truth is that Ojik's style and media varied widely, as did the themes in her work. Alternating between fluid lines of her early narrative paintings in the 1960s to densely expressive explorations of her history paintings in the 1970s, and beautiful color and form of British Columbia forests in the 1980s. She created works connected to dance and vibrations, and illustrated a book of erotic stories called Tales from the Smokehouse. She painted abstractions and landscapes using a range of techniques and materials, and she responded to life around her, as any artist does. In 1966, she and her husband, who was a community development officer for the Department of Indian Affairs, moved to a small Cree settlement in northern Manitoba. The Shemawewin Cree at Easterville had recently been displaced from their homeland to make way for a dam and generating station, and she observed the disorder, poverty, and confusion caused by their relocation. Ojig made a series of highly detailed pen and ink drawings to document the daily life of the community. She sketched cabins, dog teams, fishing boats, and locals, these drawings encouraged her to look further into the realities of what was happening to Indigenous people in Canada. There's a lot of pain there. That doesn't get said because she, she tended to put a cheerful cast on things. And I think especially in her later work, there was a large demand for this very cheerful, wholesome, unchallenging picture of Indigenous life. She went on to create large paintings and murals that challenged national stereotypes of Indian life and further drove her painting technique. In 1978, she made a 37-foot painting, which many people refer to as her masterpiece. This monumental mural is called The Indian in Transition. It is divided into four vignettes that share both a celebration of survival and an unwavering account of colonization in Canada. The first quadrant of that piece is pre-contact. So you see people singing and dancing, there are birds flying and spirits, and it's full of music. To the far right of this kind of idyllic scene in the uh, pre-contact world, you see two people looking to the right, to the east. And what are they looking at? It's a boat. And there's a, a man, he's got white skin. You see the drum, it's fractured, it's been broken. And above, you see a, a being, a woman, overlooking it all. In the boat behind the man is a huddled group of people. They're coming. These are the settlers. In the third section of this large mural, is shaped like a bottle 
At the very top of the bottle, there's a person in black. Again, his skin is white. He has a book in his hand. There's a cross underneath him. There's a school. There are small children being led into the school. There's a broken bottle at the bottom of the picture and someone crouched over it. We begin to see the effects of colonization on the people. The fourth panel of this large mural shows the rebirth. It shows men flying from the sky, carrying a drum. And here we see two warriors carrying a big drum and a giant bird with his wings. And we see folks singing and dancing again and beating that drum and moving forward into the future. And so, although the piece is full of very difficult knowledge, it's also full of hope and strength. The Indian in Transition was commissioned by the Museum of Man, now called the Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. The director at the time asked Ojig to paint the biggest damn painting she could. It took her four years to complete the 37-foot commission. But when the mural arrived... It was not installed in the museum as planned. They put it in the National Arts Centre, which is across the river in the, in the city of Ottawa, and it was in the lobby for many years, many decades. I think that this was a misstep. They were treating it as a kind of decoration, as a kind of um, interior mural, instead of a piece of, of fine art. That really says so much about the situation of Indigenous artists during those years, where their work just really wasn't seen as a bona fide, genuine example of Canadian art practice. Even after the painting made its way to the museum, it was relegated to the rafters, partially obscured by the ventilation and heating system of the museum's library. The work just was not valued for the tremendous amount of insight and the poetic kind of narrative that, that she's, she's trying to instruct Canadians about. You know, the old Anishinaabe people used to record their stories and their history and their ceremonies on scrolls, on long pieces of birch bark that they would sew together and could be folded together to create texts. And for me, this is reminiscent of that. She is reaching back to an old way of recording the story and speaking to the youth of today and the youth of tomorrow. While it seemed Ojik had found her voice as an artist and as an Indigenous woman, that didn't mean the mainstream art world accepted or understood her art. Here are Ojik's words again in that letter from 2009. Ojik would have been 90 at the time, and was still seeking answers to these questions that followed her throughout her life. I am still wrestling with the issues around whether there is a need to have a separate exhibition space for Indian art. I remember as a young girl being very disappointed when the priest cancelled our participation in the fall fair competitions with the neighboring white community. It was our chance to prove that we were as good as they were. We wouldn't have that opportunity if we only competed among ourselves. At the same time, I realize the need for artists of Native ancestry to develop within a context that honors their cultural heritage and respects their aesthetic perspective. 
What Daphne's work shows me is that we must not flinch from looking at the difficulties that face us and that we must move through them with a clear purpose. If we look at this work and we really come to be able to read it and understand it and internalize it, we have taken on a responsibility to that work. We have a responsibility once we have been told what the truth is. We have a responsibility to honor that truth. And if there's something that we owe Daphne right now, it is to take a hold of our sovereignty as individuals and as community and live that sovereignty every day. It's 2022, and Daphne Ojik has passed away almost six years ago now. What she accomplished in her life made it possible for Indigenous artists, especially female Indigenous artists, to have a voice. She showed us that when you forge your own path, it's best not to do it alone. And she did so while exemplifying the strength and leadership of Indigenous women. No wonder Bonnie thinks so highly of her. She's, uh, she's my hero. If you'd like to see the images referred to in this episode, check out the links in the show notes. The Art of Sovereignty is written and hosted by Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk. Produced by Ozzy Michelin and Katie O'Connor. Edited by Chris Beaver with assistance from Matthew O'Mara. Lori Few is the executive producer for Digital at TVO. Production assistance from Jonathan Hallowell, Nikki Ashworth, and Albert Wisco. Music by Bedtrack. We'd like to thank the artists and curators who made time to speak with us for the series. Special thanks to the Art Gallery of Peterborough, the Power Plant Gallery, Carleton University, and especially Wanda Nanabush and the Art Gallery of Ontario.